Father, I ask that you would speak to your people now through your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill me. Give me words. Give me your thoughts. Help me draw uh, through my words your people to your Son. That we would see Jesus today for all that he is and all that he's done. That we would worship him and follow him, Lord, because he's worthy. Thank you for this time to, to hear about Jesus through your word. I pray that in his name. Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, we are continuing in our five-week sermon series called What is the Gospel? What is the core message of the Christian faith? Gospel, again, means good news. What's the good news? The good news is that God is redeeming this broken world, that he is reconciling and restoring all things in his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to, to, to know why and how it is that God is doing that. And that's what this sermon series is all about. So we started two weeks ago understanding who God is. We then talked about who we are. And in that, we were able to see both a perfect and good plan of God for his creation, to glorify him, to live in, in relationship with him and with one another, harmoniously, righteously, beautifully, wholly, forever. And we also saw that that was broken because humanity, at one point, tempted by Satan, tempted by the serpent, said, God, no we don't want that anymore. We don't want to find our identity and our significance and our worth in you as your image bearers. We'd rather look to ourselves or some other created thing for our identity and our worth and our significance. We don't need you. And that willful act of rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And sin destroyed the perfect harmony of our relationships with God, one another, and creation. Now, where we left off last week in talking about that was we, we left off with this, this conundrum. The conundrum was we have a God who is perfect and holy and righteous and just, who can't just let destructive sin go unpunished, unmet, undealt with. If he is good, then he's got to deal with it. And he tells Adam and Eve in the garden, what he will have to do, that if they disobey, they will surely die. Death is the, 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 um, the obvious result of the destructive power of sin. It's also the righteous response of a God who is just. So we have that hanging over our heads, all of us, and yet at the same time, we have a God who is, because he is good, He's merciful. He's loving and gracious and kind. And so there's this tension that we're left with. How can God be both just and merciful? And that leads us to how God will respond to that, how God answers that tension. And he answers it through his son, Jesus Christ, who comes to earth to save us, to rescue us, from his righteous wrath against sin and its destructive power and to demonstrate his mercy to us. So this morning is about looking at Jesus. You probably know John 3.16. Most people do. They've at least heard it once in their life. 
And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, would not fall under that, that ultimate death penalty of his righteous judgment, but would have everlasting life, would receive the mercy to be restored to what we were created to be. What I want to do this morning is help us to see three different ways how it is that Christ can accomplish that rescuing work. Who is he and how does he save us? The first thing I want us to understand about Christ is that Christ is the image of God. And in that regard, he's our example. Think about this with me. If sin destroyed us because we were made in the image of God and we said we're not going to look like that anymore, we, the image of God is broken in mankind, then the first thing that Jesus does in coming to us is he, he brings the image of God back into a broken world that had forgotten what that image was and he shows us how to be restored back into that image again. He's, he's bringing back together the broken image. Let me explain where I'm getting all this from. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 is a great place to start. It says this. It says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now notice there that there says something different about Jesus than it said about Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 2. They were made, we are made, humanity, in the image of God. It doesn't say Jesus is in the image of God. It says he is the image of God. He is the essence of the image. The Son is the image, in other words, in accordance with which human beings are formed. He's not the reflection. He's the object. Why is that important? Well, again, remember our starting point in the gospel. If it starts with God, and we we learned last week that we were made in the image of God so that we would reflect him into our world. We would bring him glory in that way. That's our primary purpose for existence. We glorify our maker by reflecting him as he made us to do. And because he is our maker, we're accountable to him to do so. But again, we failed. This is where sin has entered into the world. We've all sinned against him. And therefore, we can't fix that problem. Again, that image is broken. That image has been marred. Uh, it's, it's sort of like if you have a mirror. This happened in my house actually this week. A mirror falls off the wall and shatters and breaks. The mirror can't fix itself, right? There's it, nothing it can do. It's just broken. It, it would need to be recreated. It would need to be remade to be restored, so if that's our problem, we're broken and we can't fix it, then, then, then we need a way forward. We need a way forward if we're going to be restored and if we're going to avoid the righteous judgment of God against our sin. So if Jesus is the perfect image of God, the good news is that in him we find that way forward. We find that way forward. He is both God, he is the, again, the object, he is the image itself, he's the mold, and he becomes humanity to live out 
in a sinless life, that image, so that he can be what we were created to be, but could not be as sinners. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he is because we need a connection back to God. You know, the ancient rabbis uh, used to ask this question. It's one of the greatest theological questions uh, of the ancient rabbinic tradition. They would say this, where can God be seen? This is what they would ask. Where can God be seen? John chapter 1 answers that ancient rabbinical question in Jesus by saying this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, He has now made Him known. 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks again about this problem of not being able to see God. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world being that ancient serpent, Satan himself. Unbelievers' minds are, are blinded to keep them, he says, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is what Jesus is. This is who he is. He is the way that God can be seen. He's the way that God can be known. The goodness of God can be known. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become like us, a human being, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus is the image of God coming back to meet mankind where they're at and show us what that image in us ought to look like. And he comes to us as one of us in the incarnation. He takes on flesh. God becomes a human being so that he might also be merciful to us. We're told here this big word to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean? The incarnation is necessary, in other words, for him to both reveal God to us, but also to represent us as one of us. This is the second thing about Christ that we need to know. He's not just the image of God, but he is our substitute. He's our substitute. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we talked about last week. That's every one of us. This sin has, has destroyed all of us and we're all guilty of willfully committing it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, Paul says here, we are justified... We are made right again with God by His grace. By His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus redeems us back to God. How? He says here, 
That it's because God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This, he says, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You say, well, I thought God wasn't going to sweep sins under the rug. He was patient with us. He's passed over them to this point so that he could show his righteousness now at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God be just and deal with sin and also justify those of us who have faith? It's this word propitiation. He put his son forth as a propitiation by his blood. Let's define what that means. It means that Christ is a substitutionary atonement for our sin. All right, I'll explain this a little bit more. I know these are kind of big Bible words. Substitutionary. He takes my place, right? He steps in where I am rightfully under the judgment of God for my sin. He substitutes and takes my place. He atones for that sin by in his act now of being this propitiation, he satisfies God's justice, right? So he's the substitutionary atonement for my sin. Again, you keep, you're probably thinking, Bill, you've got to define this word propitiation more. What does it mean? Propitiation is the removal of the wrath of God against sinners. Okay, It removes that righteous justice and wrath off of us by placing it on our substitute. By the death instead of Jesus so Jesus is, our, uh, is the image of God who restores back to us a, a closeness to who God is. He reveals himself to us. He comes to us. He shows us what we were made for. But then he's also merciful to us by taking our place so that God's justice can be satisfied on him not and us, not on us. Jesus dies. Jesus bears the wrath of God on the cross for sinners like you and me. Now that's a doctrine, this idea of the substitutionary atonement that has been greatly misunderstood, especially in modern times. This idea that God would kill his own son in order to appease his own wrath is sort of a, a concept that moderns struggle with and have a hard time with. Let me give you a quote from one such person, Brian McLaren, who said this, the idea that, that God would, would punish his own son for sins that not he, but we committed, he says that sounds like one more injustice. That sounds like another injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse, you know? That's a quote. That's what he said. Another mistaken person has described this idea of substitutionary atonement or the penal substitutionary atonement that justice was satisfied when Christ is punished for our sin. He says this is like a, it's like a vengeful father. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Now, there, it's understandable that you know, people both inside and outside of the church have found that to be difficult to understand. They may be even morally dubious. 
Maybe that's a huge barrier to faith for some people. How could, again, a loving God punish anyone, let alone his own son, for something that his son didn't do? This concept seems to stand in contradiction to their understanding of the statement, God is love. If the cross is a, is a personal act of violence that's, that's perpetrated by God towards humanity, but born on his son, <clears throat> then, then doesn't that make a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your own enemies? To treat them as yourself to refuse to repay evil with evil. All right, those are fair questions and good questions, but they're misguided questions. This misunderstanding discounts the truth of what we've already learned about the nature and character of God. He is loving and merciful, and he's also holy and just. He's all of those things, loving and merciful, holy and just. Because he's loving, God is not content to leave all people under his wrath. But because he's just, again, he can't just sweep our sin under the rug. And therefore, his love and his justice must conspire together to make a way for sinners to be saved from God's justice and to be vindicated. This brings us back to this idea of propitiation. The sin did not go unpunished. It was punished fully. As the wrath of God is poured out, His judgment is poured out on Christ. And yet the guilty, us, are shown mercy. John Piper says the ultimate problem that all human beings face is that they're guilty of grievous sin against a holy God. And therefore, God's omnipotent wrath is against them. But the ultimate good news of the gospel is that there is a way to have the wrath of God averted and that God himself has made the way the Apostle John says in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. In other words, what John's saying here is, is that apart from, from obedience to the Son of God, the wrath of God remains the biggest problem a person will ever have. And according to Revelation chapter 14, as God describes there again the picture of the eternal punishment of sin, hell itself, there will be eternal torment. That's how serious sin is to a holy God. But there is good news for the world. There's relief, there's salvation, there's rescue. Our passage here in Romans 3 says that God has made a way to propitiate, to remove his own wrath against sinners. And the answer is in the death of Jesus Christ, his own son, on the cross. Jesus removed the wrath of God from us by dying for us. He takes the curse of sin away by becoming a curse for us. 
as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. In Romans 3, God again put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. And there's no more wonderful news in all the world than this, that Christ has endured the wrath of God in our place so that our sins are no longer counted against us. All of the judgment for our sins has been dealt with. It's been paid for. It all falls on Christ. That's what it means that he is the propitiation for our sins. Romans says this. It says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It's also to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is Christ? He's the eternal God come to us, taking on flesh, becoming fully human. He is the image of God and he's our substitute. As God and as man, he can both live the perfect, holy, righteous life that we couldn't live. He could be the sinless one who could also go to a cross and die the death that we deserve by taking the wrath of God upon himself so that he could be merciful to us. Justice is met. Mercy is given. Now, if we ended just with that understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, it would be enough, in some sense, it would be amazing, and it would be wonderful news. But that's not the full extent of who Christ is and what he's done. This is not where the work of Christ ends. Because three days later, Jesus rose again. He didn't just die on a cross for our sins and satisfy the just penalty for sin, but he rose again. He conquered the penalty of sin. He conquered death. And he then ascended to the Father in heaven to continually act on our behalf. What does his resurrection and ascension mean for the good news of the gospel? Well, it means this. It means that death doesn't get the final word. The curse is lifted. So death has no more power. Jesus defeats it, and therefore, by faith in him, when, we, when our sins are forgiven in him, when we're cleansed by him and restored to the image of God, we can be assured that we too will resurrect, that we too will have this eternal life rather than perishing. That's, the, that's one aspect of the good news of his, of his resurrection, but the, there's more to it that, than that. He then ascends back to the Father with a new role. As our Savior and as our Vindicator, He also becomes, and this is the third thing I want to look at, our Advocate. He's not just the image, He's not just the uh, substitute, but He's also the Advocate. 1 John chapter 2, first two verses. My little children, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is an advocate? 
An advocate is someone who has an official relationship with you. So that, that whether the advocate, whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. Whatever they do counts towards you. And of course, the, the concept of advocacy that we're probably most familiar with today is that of, of a lawyer, right? Someone who acts as a legal proxy. Especially uh, someone who maybe acts as a, with the power of attorney for you. In that case, you've got this lawyer who stands in and represents you as the client so that, again, whatever they achieve, you achieve. Whatever they lose, you lose, right? Everything that they do is transferred to you. Charles Hodge, about 100 years ago, was a Presbyterian theologian who, who applied this understanding of legality and lawyers and powers of attorney to the relationship between Christ and us as his people. He says this, he says, the relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The lawyer stands in the client's place. And it is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not regarded. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. The advocate, not you, is regarded. So if Jesus is our advocate, what is he doing up there? at the Father's side, now that he's ascended there? Well, he's speaking. He's talking. If we stick to this illustration of a lawyer, everybody knows why he's doing that. It's, that's the job of a lawyer, right? He's up there pleading before the throne of God for our sake. And a lawyer is one who knows how to make a case that I could not. The book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ stands as our high priest before the Father. It means that he stands there as our representative, speaking on our behalf as our legal proxy and our advocate. And what does a good lawyer do? They don't just play on the emotions of the court. Right? A good lawyer makes a case. They present evidence and they present facts and they say this is what justice demands. So what's the case that Jesus is making as our advocate before the Father? It's his atoning sacrifice. He's saying, this wrong that's been done has already been paid for. I've already stepped in and paid that debt. I've already satisfied the just demands of this wrongdoing He's up there not, not asking for, for mercy, per se, but demanding justice. Now, it's unworthy to think of Jesus as, as having to, to sort of persuade the Father. You've got to understand what this is about. He's standing before the Father, Jesus is, before the justice of God's, in other words, and, and he's relentlessly saying something like this, Yes, Father, Bill sinned again. He sinned again. She sinned again. My follower has sinned again. Yes, this is absolutely true. But I died the death they should have died. That's already happened past tense. 
And I've lived the life that they're not living. I lived that perfect and sinless life, and I lived it in their place. I am their advocate. Therefore, they have achieved what I've achieved. They are lost in me, if you will. When you look at them, Father, you have to see me, my perfection, my satisfaction of justice. You have to see what I've done. You have to see all who I am. And therefore, Father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for this sin. And Father, I know that you can't do what is unjust because you are perfectly just. I've already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I'm not, I'm not asking for mercy. Mercy was applied when I came and died for them. I'm now asking for justice that what I achieved has lasting eternal effect. Now, some people might say, where, where does it say that? This idea of he's asking for justice, not mercy. Well, it says it in 1 John 1, 9. Listen to what it says. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful and just. Notice it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say he's faithful and loving. Of course, he is faithful and loving. He, of course, is faithful and merciful. I'm not saying he's not, but it's saying when we confess our sins, those of us who are in Christ, we find here that God forgives our sins because we have an advocate with the Father who reminds him that he's faithful and just. Justice has to be stronger than mercy. And it is. If there was a judge who had a son or a daughter who committed a crime and had to come to trial before them, there's not a judge anywhere who would A, be allowed, or B, who would even want to preside over a trial for their own child. Why? Because justice has to be stronger than mercy. It has to be stronger than mercy. Incredibly, we have this situation in which the justice and the love of God demand that he accepts us. There's nothing beyond this at all. Jesus says, Father, I don't ask for mercy. I demand justice. And there's no greater case than that. The justice of God on the scales. Right? The thing that we always worry about, the scales. Here's my deeds and my records. And here's the, here's the demands and the justice of the law. And so my deeds and my records can't possibly outweigh the deeds of the law. And so the idea of, of blind justice is a frightening thing unless you understand this. We have the law of God not on the other side against us, but on our side for us. Because the justice of God met in Christ is completely for us. That's an amazing thing. By the way, that's what separates Christianity from any other religion. No other religion says this. This is far more than just forgiveness. Most people seem to think that, that what it means that Jesus died for you 
is that, that, that he, he just sort of wipes your slate clean, that, that that's what forgiveness means. He just, he just wipes it clean and, and then sort of puts you back on probation now, right? Just go do a better job now. That's not what it's about at all. Rather, no, Jesus has gone through the probation for us. He puts us beyond probation. He not only gives us forgiveness for our sins, but has accomplished righteousness for us. He's not just the one who pays our penalty, but who is our advocate. He's the one who stands in for us. He's our champion. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And this word author, by the way, in the Greek means champion. That's in Hebrews 12.2. He's the one who accomplishes it for us. So in Jesus, we have an example, we have a substitute, and we have an advocate. God's love and God's justice are not mutually exclusive. His justice flows from his love. Love is the first priority. Love is the driving force behind the good news of the gospel. I love what John Stott says. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. Now, if these things are true about Christ, and they are, this is how God meets our problem, right? The image of God is broken in us. He sends the perfect image to us to reveal to us again what that's like to show us the way forward, to pay the debt of our sins so that we could be remade new, that we could be forgiven, that we could now have an advocate in heaven who says, that's been done, that's been taken care of. They can be restored now in me. My righteousness back applied to them. Then, then the big question is, how do we receive that? How do we respond to that? Next week, we're going to talk about that in depth. But the, the biblical idea is twofold. One is, is repentance, and the other is belief. Repentance simply means a recognition that I am a sinner in need of that salvation and a willingness to say, I'm going to turn from my sin towards Christ. That's what repentance means, to turn from my sin towards Christ. Belief is about trust. It's about placing my all laying all of my, my hope and all of my confidence on the fact that what Jesus did on the cross counts for me, that he really did pay my debt, that his resurrection really did conquer the penalty of death, that in him I really can have re restoration to the Father and new life, that I really do have an advocate in him. That's belief. Repent and believe. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. But perhaps the, the Holy Spirit is even showing you right now that that's exactly what you need. You don't need to wait till next week. If you recognize your need for a Savior, if you recognize that you're standing before a holy God is marred by your sin, that you're accountable for that, and that apart from God doing something to rescue you, you would be under His judgment. And now you see God has done something for you in Jesus then turn to Christ and believe.
confess with all your heart, Jesus, you are the answer to my sin problem. You are the Lord. You are God. You are the image. And I need you. I pray that you would say that this week if you don't yet know him. And I pray that you'll come back next week and allow me to explain to you more of what it means to repent and believe in Christ. I'll see you then.